Let us pray. O God, meet us in every thought. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be faithful in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but I have quite intentionally been taking mental journeys over the past several days, turning the pages of that giant photo book that lives in my memory, zeroing in on those places that evoke comfort or even transcendence. A little over four years ago, my extended family took a big family trip to Ireland, the place of the ancestors, a place that my grandmother had dreamt of visiting for many, many years until we convinced her that we really could do this. It is a trip that I will be forever grateful for. But a few days into it, after our rather large intergenerational group had spent a couple of nights in Dublin in a badly chosen hotel that was perched above a pub and meandered our way across the country on cliffside roads where it is unfathomable to me that we don't hear more about those tour buses falling off the edges, we arrived at our home base for the duration of the vacation. Jet lagged, motion sick, and having lost our filters already. And it was raining and chilly. So trying to get into a happier place, the women folk in our group meandered through the town trying to get acquainted. Most of us in baseball caps having given up on our hair bickering about silly things and moaning about the clouds, not looking more than a few feet in front of us. And with a stroke of luck, or providence, my 15-year-old cousin, Anna, caught sight of a little cottage-like shop that was just a ways off the beaten trail. And we made our way to what turned out to be a little art gallery. The painter and her easel, both covered in paint, set up in a corner. And the rest of the brightly lit space, full of vivid painting after painting after painting of water, shallow water, Deep water, calm water, raging water. All of the colors that water could possibly reflect from sunrise to high noon to dusk to sunset and in any given season. It was a place that you had to move about slowly, sort of suspended in time. We had spread out, each of us taking a different path around that gallery, 
our attention captured by different paintings, but our hearts captured by the totality of the place and the way that it was transporting us elsewhere. When my aunt and I bumped into each other, her shaky voice betrayed her as she struggled to name the surprise and the slight embarrassment that she felt at being so deeply moved in this place. I don't know what is going on here, Sarah, but I feel like I could cry. Moments later, we were in deep conversation with the artist herself, Carol, whose warmth and ease and depth reflected her paintings. She was native to Dingle, Ireland, and had spent many years abroad painting landscapes, but the water itself kept calling her back home until she submitted to its claim. We probably lingered for an hour in that gallery and only peeled away after promising Carol that we each planned to have one of her paintings hanging above our fireplaces just as soon as we could pay off the trip to Ireland itself. For now, she would need to accept payment in the form of applause and a few self-conscious tears. Suspended in time, as we were, transported as we were, the biggest portion of the blessing, nevertheless, was what it did for our little group as we moved on. The paintings that were so transcendent, in fact, were paintings of the waters that physically surrounded us in that place. So as we moved out of the gallery and back into the real world, we did so with a shifted perspective. Ultimately, it turned our gaze back to what we were there for in the first place. It lifted us, giving us a shared something to gush over. And it made us mindful of the beauty that surrounded us, beauty that we were apparently worthy of. I imagine that many if not all of you arrived for worship today, whether in the sanctuary here or virtually, with a yearning to be transported somewhere. The real world has been real enough the last several days. Thank you very much. Let's just stop and breathe and be here in this place for a moment. In one of his books, Robert Havda reminds his readers that in Orthodox Christianity, when the assembly gathers, they have stopped chronological time and entered a different reality. But the time stoppage is not an end in itself. In today's preparation for worship words, Another in the Orthodox tradition exhorts us, worship is not an escape from the world. Rather, it is arrival at a vantage point from which we can see more deeply into the reality of the world. 
In an Orthodox worship service, everything and everyone is placed in a particular way, in a way that communicates our relationship to God and the reign of God and the world that we inhabit at any given time. The sanctuary, which contains the holy altar, is separated from the nave where the worshipers gather by a panel that is covered with icons. The placement of the icons and the way that that panel separates the sanctuary from the nave indicates where we stand in the here and now between the first and the second comings of Christ. An Orthodox church is a rather enchanting place. Sometimes it's been accused by many in our own tradition of being too enchanting. But all of that otherworldliness meant to give a foretaste of God's glory and the resurrection of all things at the end of time ultimately is supposed to reorient us in the present. It redirects our attention to where we stand in this in-between time, where there is still work to be done, where God's reign on earth as it is in heaven is not yet complete. In our tradition, we often refer to this in-between time as already, but not yet. Meaning the kingdom of God has come close, most uniquely and profoundly in Jesus. It is an indwelling reality that reveals itself wherever the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and the violence is exposed and the truth is told. And it is very much beyond us. A vision that we keep before us a vision with an invitation that empowers us to keep on keeping on in this world that is still so broken. Places of worship are intentional in their placement of the people and the things that aid for worship. For the Orthodox, a clear communication of where we stand between the first and second comings. Already, not yet. In our reading from the book of Joshua this morning, we encounter a people who have been brought to an intentional place for an important decision. Shechem was the place where God appeared to Abram before he was Abraham promising him long, long before these liberated Hebrews made it to the promised land, that he would be blessed with land and with descendants that were like the stars. Hebrew scholar Anathia Portier Young also reminds her readers that, not insignificantly, Shechem was also designated as a city of refuge, a haven that interrupted and transformed a landscape that was marred by violence and revenge. So Joshua now gathers the people in this city that orients them to the boundary between justice and mercy, 
And beside the altar that commemorates God's revelation and promise and their ancestors' worshipful response. At the moment of decision, the people are surrounded by physical reminders of God's revelation and promise and oriented by their own shared practices of worship, justice, and mercy. The radicalness of the decision that Joshua puts in front of the people is betrayed by its seeming simplicity. Choose this day whom you will serve. If the people thought it was an easy answer, Joshua's immediate response is pretty sobering. He straight up tells them, you cannot, because he's a jealous God. He seems to make the case that it is actually better to serve other gods than to serve the one true God with anything less than total integrity. The language of this text, taken out of context as it often is, and adorning the walls of so many of our homes, may make this story sound a little trite to some ears. But the decision was arguably the most consequential that the Israelites ever made. And the moment of decision, brimming with tension, a tension that Joshua wanted them to feel in their bones, choose this day whom you will serve. It's informative that Joshua didn't denigrate the lesser gods the many gods that the Hebrews' own ancestors worshipped. He freely allows the truth that we all need something to serve, some guiding power or principle that gives us grounding and direction and hope. If you're not going to serve the Lord, he says, then at least choose today whom you will serve whether it's the old gods of our ancestors or these new contemporary gods that we've met among the Amorites. What you can't do is pay lip service to serving the one true God and then in practice serve the lesser gods. I can hear 21st century North American Joshua saying something similar. Choose something, something that makes it clear you're not God in your own life. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's your country or your city. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's a self-help guru or a particular mantra or practice. But choose something. But if you choose to serve the Lord then you should know what you're getting into. Because the Lord our God is a jealous God. And any other service that you render, even good forms of service, will need to take a back seat. People who serve God serve God. And God's truth and God's way first. Every time... And in every facet, 
of their individual and collective lives. There is no opting out. There's no domesticating of this. There's no spiritualizing it away. There is no deciding that God has nothing to say about this or that. There is no escaping God's sovereignty over all the things. So choose today whether you can do that, whether you want to do that. Sometimes I wonder if God, in God's all-knowingness, knew or feared what a monotheistic worldview could become if it was lukewarm in its compassion and commitment, but armored up with confidence. And so the moment of decision and a moment with a genuine choice. It wasn't coerced. Joshua didn't use a fear tactic to elicit a faithful response from the Israelites. He said they could worship the other gods, that they should, in fact, if they determined that worshiping the Lord was simply too much. He didn't say that to worship the other things inevitably led to death or destruction. He didn't say there was anything inherently bad about them. They simply weren't the God who liberated the people from slavery, bringing them up and out of Egypt and through the wilderness into a land brimming with hope. Choose this day whom you will serve. This was a moment of great import for the Israelites. It wouldn't be the last for the generations that came after them, but for this generation, it was profound. In verse 31, it tells us, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So for many years, the people made good on the decision that they made that day. And we can lift this up and celebrate it as a time when the people got it right. For us, these moments of decision come at different times. There are the most obvious times, baptism, confirmation, a reaffirmation of faith when one joins a different congregation. But these moments also come when we feel a shift and need to repent or recommit or simply remind ourselves to whom we belong first, to whom we answer. It's likely that all of us come to worship today with the feeling that something has shifted on the heels of a long election week and results that we finally got yesterday. And whether you come with disappointment or fear or great relief or a healing wound or hope, you come as a child of God and you stand before God 
surrounded, if even in your imagination, by physical reminders of God's revelation and promise, oriented by this community's own shared practices of worship, justice, and mercy. And you and we have a decision to make. And it's a decision that we would make no matter which candidate gave a victory speech last night. Choose this day whom you will serve. Thanks be to God. Amen.